0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Weird, Wacky, and Wonderful Stories podcast. Now, please welcome, all the way from the front living room, your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 36 of the Weird, Wacky, and Wonderful Stories podcast.
1: Hi, everybody. 36, huh?
0: 36. Um, your age?
1: <laughs> yeah, I wish.
0: We've got a really interesting guests coming up for you and a really interesting show where we cover lots of different things, including Men in Black, Alien Abduction, Implants, Ancient Aliens and lots, lots more. But before we get started with that, I just want a quick appeal to you. If you wouldn't mind clicking subscribe on that podcast so that you can get the episodes as they come out and follow all of our future amazing guests and amazing shows.
1: Alright, that's enough begging. I mean, jeez, aren't your knees sore? Anyway, what are we doing today?
0: Well, today we're speaking with someone who is a MUFON investigator, best-selling author of both fiction and non-fiction. She's a screenwriter, producer, researcher and public speaker. She has her own production company, Where's Lucy Productions, and has appeared on shows like Ancient Aliens and the Nostradamus Effect series. She's also a fully trained disaster response preparedness member of CERT. And on top of all of that, she has one of the most rewarding jobs in the world. She's a mom. She's been interviewed by the best in the business, and now she's being interviewed by us. Please welcome to the show, Marie D. Jones.
2: Hello there Oh I love that intro That was great oh, thank you very much
0: <laughs> We've got a couple of questions That have actually come in From listeners as well If you wouldn't mind uh, Helping us out With some of those
2: Well it depends On what they are we, We'll be kind <laughs> to you We promise We've got we've got <laughs> nice listeners <laughs> I, I will do my best To answer anything As long as it's not too, too personal And probing
0: No no We've tried to leave that To the aliens If we can
3: <laughs> yeah, Exactly Exactly
0: <laughs> I've been reading your book, Science, and it says in there that your father was a geophysicist. Did he inspire you in some way to find your own answers?
2: Oh, my gosh, absolutely. So both my parents did. My dad, you know, from childhood instilled in me a a love of science, of all kinds of sciences from a very early age. I loved being out in nature. I collected rocks. I was a bird watcher. I had this big book bag full of bird feathers. I identified leaves and trees and I tracked animals in the woods behind our house. And when I was seven years old, my dad, very casually at the supper table said, oh, you know, at one point this was all under, we were all underwater. And so I went out the next day and dug a four or five foot hole in the backyard and found fossils.
0: (laughs) I love that part of the book. That actually made me laugh because you actually asked your mom for a spoon, I remember.
2: (laughs) First it was a spoon, then it was like a bigger spoon, then it was a shovel. And then I got really smart and realized that I could have my the neighborhood kids do the digging and I would supervise.
3: There you go. So,
2: yeah, <laughs> my mom said she looked out the back window, looked down at, at the swing set area, which is where we were digging, and I was like in this gigantic hole. <laughs> it's like what the heck? <laughs> um, but yeah, I love science. My mean, mom was real creative and always told us stories. We used to sit on a little carpet in front of our kitchen door, a side door, and we would pretend we were on the magic carpet and she would tell us stories. So I got the writing and I got the love of science. But here's another really interesting thing. Now, my dad you know this brilliant scientist well he and his colleagues were really into ufos and my dad was always very much interested in the paranormal as were a lot of scientists you know that he said really a lot of them really do want to know what's going on with things like you know ghosts and aliens and what have you but they can't really talk about it openly. So my dad had all kinds of really neat UFO books that I've inherited. And it was just a favorite subject of his. We went to see Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was in charge of the great Project Blue Book. Yeah, Yeah, we went to see him speak together Time so, mean, he was so excited. Um, and then, you know, then on the other hand, I had the creative, hold that creative life of storytelling and writing. And I started telling stories. And so I really got to kind of combine the two as a writer.
1: You have a son. So have you captured his interest as well? Okay. So this kid is really weird. <laughs> <laughs>
2: he's not here, so I can say that. So, you know, what's really funny? Well, he's 17 now, he's a teenager now. So years ago, we wrote a book together. We're actually getting ready to re-release it along with the second book. It's called Echo, Evil Kid Hunting Organization. And it is based on a real group that my son formed in elementary school when he was being bullied because he has a disability. And it was like a spy group. And it got so big and so sophisticated I didn't even know about it for a while until the teachers were telling me, you know, do you know about Echo? Uh, no. <laughs> and so we decided to write a book based on that. But here's the thing. My son hates to write.
1: Well, that's <laughs> what he has you for, right?
2: <laughs> so his dad is a musician. And for the longest time, though, he hated musical instruments and had no interest in it. So now that he's a little older, he's playing guitar, bass totally getting into the music, then going to concerts with his dad. The writing, he's really good at helping me come up with ideas, but he doesn't kind of physically like to do, you know, the, the writing on paper, so to speak. But it's just so weird when you have a kid, you kind of really want to see them take after you. Yeah, <laughs> And he's really into tech, you know, technology, gaming, that kind of stuff. And he does design a lot of the graphics that I use, which is really fun because he gets to be involved that way
0: too. I know that in your book, you mentioned that you believe in the paranormal and that you'd actually had your own experiences. Can you share any of those with us?
2: Yeah, so I've always believed or accepted might be a better word. Even when I was young and I love reading science and all the, the different types of science, and I always knew that there was an unseen side to things, to reality, if you will. And I could sense it and feel it. And it just, when you're a kid, you just kind of openly believe that. It's not until you're older that people start saying, oh no, you can't prove it, so it's not real. Well, for me, it was never a problem to believe that what we call the paranormal is simply science that has not quite yet been defined. Now, for me, all of the experiences I've had have always been a little bit indirect. So for example, I would, you know, I would see or experience things, but they were not like uh, other people would say, oh my God, I saw an apparition appear right in front of me and it slapped me in the face. You know, <laughs> Or yeah, I saw a land and the alien came and gave me a dollar. You know, there was nothing. <laughs> Mine were always a little more vague and caused me to really have to think hard. Is this, Uh, Something paranormal? Is it something psychological? Is it a combination of the two? The earliest thing I can remember, and it's funny because I just wrote a screenplay that's based on this. When I was about, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old, I was outside and I looked down our driveway through the garage. The garage was empty at the time to a back window where I saw a skeleton, like a skull looking at me through the back window and i screamed and ran across the street to my friend's house well years later i saw a picture of a gray alien and thought that's what was looking at me through the window you know and as a kid i mean i didn't know what they were so i had identified it as
1: a skull yeah closest sort of thing you could think of it identify exactly
2: exactly yeah, did I see a weird pattern, the the sun reflecting on the window? Was it a dream that just stuck with me all these years? Things like that that happened throughout my life, uh, including two hours of missing time?
0: Oh, really, you can't you can't just leave that with us. you gotta you gotta tell <laughs> us about that.
2: <laughs> so many years ago, when Carl Sagan was still alive, I had tickets to go see him speak and I was living in Los Angeles and he was speaking at for a group called the planetary society, which I was a member of. And he was speaking maybe about a half hour away. So I knew the route there very easily. I had traveled those freeways millions of times before, and it was in the evening. And the first thing that happened is I had a really hard time getting out of my apartment. Every time I would try to open the bedroom door, to get into the living room area so I could go to the front door, the door would close on me and I could feel something pulling it closed. And I kept doing that, thinking, what the heck? You know, is there something wrong with the door hinge? And I asked my husband at the time, you know, what can you feel this? And he was like, oh, that's really weird. Then when I finally got out, I went to the, the entrance to leave, to literally leave the apartment. Same thing happened. I remember him saying, maybe you're not supposed to go tonight. Maybe that's a sign something is going to happen. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm going to see Carl Sagan. Shut up. (laughs) So (laughs) I am on the freeway. I lived in in Burbank, which is in the uh, San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. I got onto the freeway. I, again, had traveled hundreds of times, heading east all of a sudden. I come to, quote unquote, two hours have gone by and I am on a freeway heading north that I've never been on. I have no identifying markers except for the signs that go by that say that I'm on the two. The two is the freeway heading north into sort of central California. And I panicked, panicked, absolutely panicked, pulled over, got off the freeway, screaming, panicking. This is at the time when those when cell phones had just hit the market so that there were those big giant things that you could kill somebody with, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so there was no GPS, no navigator or, or anything. So basically I called my husband panicking and I was able to let him know based on the freeway that I assigned that I had just gotten off where I was. And he said, just go up that street until you hit that freeway south. You know, and he guided me back home. Now, needless to say, I didn't see Carl Sagan. So when I got home, I calmed down and I really kind of attributed it to just sometimes when you're driving, you just kind of zone out.
0: Yeah, almost automatic pilot, don't you?
2: Exactly. But this was literally two hours of absolute blackout. I don't know how I didn't kill myself or anybody else. So cut to many years later, (laughs) and I'm on a radio show with Anne Stryber, the wife of Whitley Strieber, who wrote *Communion* mm-hmm. and you know the very famous alien abduction books and movies.
1: Yeah, we've read them. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. So Anne and I, you know, we were friends, and I did her show, and I was at, we were actually on with another host, and I I mentioned that story, and Anne and the other woman both said practically at the same time. Well, that part of the freeway is notorious for alien abductions. Really? And I said, "Oh, really? (laughs) Wow." Yeah, and I'm definitely spooky. Well, what the funny thing is is, I thought at first, you know, that they were just teasing me, but but when we went off the air, they were both really encouraging me to look into hypnotic regression, and I just blew it off because, in my gut, I just kind of felt like, "Oh no, nothing happened." Well, a few months ago, I was on another radio show and the two women hosts challenged me (laughs) to get hypnotically regressed. And they wanted me to do it on the air. And I said, oh, oh, no, 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 not going to do that. (laughs) Lord knows what will come up. Yeah. I really have had to think about it like, oh, my God, you know, do I really want to know? First of all, what if something did happen? That's going to change my whole life. And then what if something didn't happen? I might actually be disappointed. So <laughs> yeah. uh, now it's really weird when you think that like that, you're like, well, that's really weird that I would maybe feel disappointed that something that outrageous didn't happen to me. So I'm not sure if I'm going to do it. Yet.
1: Well, I got to say that's a lot more uh, direct of a story than looking through the window as a child and, seeing a skeleton in the back window, that's impressive.
2: (laughs) When I was a teenager, I had another experience. And see, this is how we're there, because you can never really tell what they are. I was driving home from my boyfriend's house. I must have been maybe 16, and it was late at night. And we had a deal where I would always call him when I got home, so he knew I got home okay. And it really wasn't that far, but there was nobody on the road All of a sudden, my car kind of went airborne and there was like a really bright light and my doors open and I'm screaming and panicking, mainly because I'm afraid I'm going to fall out of the car. And then the car just kind of dropped. Now, what do you make of that? One, I could have really just hit a speed bump and kind of freaked out. You know, maybe my door came ajar or whatever. The bright light could have been in my panic. The streetlight that was there, just, you know, I was just so panicked. Oh, my God, the door's open. I'm going to fly out of the car. And, yes, I was wearing a seatbelt. Mm -hmm. So it's things like, and I've had similar experiences when it comes to things like ghosts, where I will go into a room or an area in a house or, like, here at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, which is supposed to be notorious for ghost ghosts and hauntings yeah we, re- and, we you know, read a,
0: we read a book about the there was a ufo incident that happened there as well at that uh coronado wasn't there
2: yeah there's all kinds of stuff and the funny thing is it's just such a beautiful hotel and it's always really busy there's always a lot of people around so you have to wonder you know wow uh, it, it, usually you think of you know these abandoned hotels and out in the middle of nowhere being haunted or like these abandoned asylums. But the Hotel Dell is gorgeous. But the funny thing is, is that when I was a teenager, we had first moved to California. And I remember being in there taking the tour. And we got to a point where there was a caution tape because there was construction going on down one of the wings of the hotel. And I remember getting sick to my stomach with this feeling of heaviness, just this sort of dread. And just, oh, my God, I need to get away from that. And then later asking, you know, what's going on down there? And it went well, we're, you know, reconstruction, blah, blah, blah. But then the person had casually mentioned, oh, there's a lot of ghosts that are allegedly down there, too. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, things like that happen all the time where I, when I was a teenager, I was at a friend's house. They had poltergeist activity going on. I did not want to stay there overnight. And I, you know, I felt really bad because I kept saying no. So I finally did. I refused to get out of my, out of the bed in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. It's like, I'd rather pee in the bed. There's no <laughs> way I had to go that hallway and nothing happened. But in the morning we were sitting, having, I think we were having breakfast. We were watching a movie, me and my best friend. And she was sitting on the couch behind me and I was sitting on the floor for some reason. I always like to sit on the floor and I, and the windows were closed. I felt the, the most coldest wind blow through my body. And it was not like, oh, wow, what a nice breeze. And it felt like nothing I had ever experienced. And I leaned over and she goes, you just felt it, didn't you? <laughs> I was like, um, I need to go home now. <laughs> Get me out of here. So it's that kind of stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. So what about your son's name is Max, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you don't have to answer this. It's it's not a problem. But uh, do you know if he has experienced anything? Obviously, teenage years and sort of slightly preteen is usually when they start to notice things, when things start happening, if there is something about or if there is some sensitivity they may have. Do do you know that if he's sensed anything or felt anything?
2: When he was little, he used to talk about things all the time, and I never was sure... You know, he had like a bunch of imaginary friends, and I did too when I was little. And you're never sure with kids if they're actually really seeing things. And but he, I mean, he would talk to them. And I remember when he was really young, he would tell me, you know, the aliens were coming and they were going to take him, and I should not be worried or upset.
0: Wow, he 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 actually said that to you.
2: Did he did? And when I tell him now, he has like no no,
0: memory. But you but... must—you must have been working. You must have been working for Mufon around that sort of time.
2: No, this was actually much later. But again, as you're kind of as what you're saying kind of makes a little bit of sense because I had been writing all these books on the paranormal, and he was always very aware. Uh, and it was a very terrifying time, and thankfully nothing happened. But. I didn't know if maybe what I was writing about was having a negative influence on him. And I felt really guilty. But, you know, now that he's older, he, he we will have really great discussions. Yeah. And what's interesting is that he has taken more of a skeptical scientific position, which I think is wonderful because he will debate and, and kind of argue his points.
1: Well, it's good that yeah you know, he he could teach you things sometimes, come up with things that maybe you hadn't thought of,
2: yeah, but when kids are young, I am of the belief that they are able to see and sense and hear things that because they're you know the the brain up until the age of seven, I believe the human brain of children operates in alpha frequency, which is. Kind of the frequency that you're in where you're kind of focused, almost like meditation, but not that deep. And, you know, it's always been said that children may be like animals where you have cats and dogs can hear different frequencies. They can see different frequencies than, than humans. And I always felt like, you know, this is just so freaky. And I ended up waiting for aliens <laughs> to come and take my kid. It's like, oh, my God, I better be ready. I'm going to
0: fight them <laughs> yeah that's one of the most frightening things I think as well I mean I'm a I'm a big six foot five guy I've got black belts and all the rest of it and you know I, I think to myself that you can fight a person coming into your house you can put up a good fight if it's something that you know what you're dealing with but if it's something that could possibly come into your house and take your children away which is the worst fear of any parent the food of nightmares I think for me
2: Oh, absolutely. Because there's nothing you can do to stop it. And what's interesting is so like now that he's older, we did go through a period later when he was 12, 13, where we used to have alien movie nights and he and I, we, we would watch alien movies, UFO movies together and he loved it. So I thought, well, okay, you know, maybe there's nothing to be concerned about, but what's interesting is like with a lot of this UFO stuff is that the memory, you know, you're, you're made to not remember yeah. things. So if I ask him, do you remember anything? And he says, no, I don't have any memory of anything. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that nothing happened, but I do kind of lean towards him being influenced. I was just immersed in research and writing, and it was what I was talking about. I was doing radio and, you know, all kinds of, of stuff so he was hearing it yeah and that's something you know we'll never really know
0: (laughs) so have you ever investigated a ufo landing which had hard evidence then going back to your time within mufon
2: no unfortunately so i was in mufon for 15 years in first in los angeles and then when i moved back to san diego i i started my own mufon group with another gal We investigated dozens of cases, mainly eyewitness reports. And I'm not saying that those are not considered good evidence, especially when you have a group of people that don't know each other and they're all saying the same thing.
0: Well, it's good enough for a court of law, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. But the thing is, there were some cases where there would be things like little indentations in the ground. But those are, you know, they're not necessarily proof that something happened. This was before the cell phone era. So very, very rarely were we able to get a case where somebody was able to take a picture or a video because you literally had to go grab a camera and if you were lucky enough to have a video camera. But the most compelling cases were when the abduction phenomenon began and they started to trickle in. And the gal that I ran the group with, her name was Lori, we didn't have any understanding of what the heck was going on. And this was before the use of hypnosis came into vogue. So we didn't know what to do with these people that were suddenly coming to us and telling us these horrendous stories. And over time, a few people stepped forward that were being trained in hypnotic regression. And I know Bud Hopkins and John Mack and a lot of the Mm. big names in the UFO world were training people and word was starting to get around in the UFO community. Here's what you do. Here's what you need to do. But that was the most terrifying thing. So the gal that I started the group with, and I won't say her last name out of privacy, she was experiencing repeated visitations. She lived in this big house at the top of a hill uh, and her children were being abducted. And she didn't reveal that to me until much later. And it got to the point where she would call me in a panic and say there were people on her property. My husband went out. They had a lot of guns. And, you know, I didn't understand why when I first met. I thought, oh, there must be hunters. But no, literally there were things on their property trying to break into that just to sort of scare them, peeping through their windows. And it got to the point where we talked and, and we said we were disbanding this group. She and our family up and left and moved somewhere. She said, I'm not telling you where I'm going because I don't want you to get involved if, if something bad is going on here. Around that same time, I was getting some really interesting phone calls by someone who had a voice changer on the phone. And who knew all kinds of things about me that were not public and was literally telling me in the apartment that I lived in what room I was in, what I was wearing, what magazine was laying on the bed or the night table. I knew that I was being watched. I didn't know by who. And I later told that story to Nick Redford, who is, I'm sure you guys know the name, huge in the field. And he said, Marie, that sounds like a man in black situation. And I said, you know, Nick, I, it could have been because I do not scare easily at all. I'm in New York, Italian, we don't scare, <laughs> but that scared me so badly that I quit move on, never went back to the UFO research field until years later, when I started to write about it in books and, uh, I just walked away and moved. We, we ended up moving to another condo. So yeah.
0: <laughs> it's, it's funny because that was a question, actually, that we had come in. And that was, have you ever felt that you were being watched or monitored? Because people that are in this field are reporting that quite regularly. It isn't just something that you've said now. It's, it's something that happens a lot, apparently.
2: Well, we used to joke about it because, again, this was before the cell phone era. And the phones were tapped. My phones had been tapped before... I was very active in the animal rights movement, you know, like years before. And I was visited constantly by the FBI and questioned and blah, blah, blah. So I knew I had a record. When I got into uh, MUFON, I thought, oh, you know, come on. I'm not doing anything outrageous. It's like I, I don't have a crashed UFO in my garage. Why on earth would they care? Well, when the phone started acting up, and you could literally sometimes, if you picked up the phone, hear voices talking to each other until uh-huh. they became aware that you were listening. That started right around the time that we were getting our first reports of abductions. Well, so obviously, somebody was interested in what was going on and what little groups like our MUFON group in San Diego was, you know, what we were doing, what was happening with us.
0: I know that you work with Jim Harold and I'm I'm a big fan of Jim Harold's. I've been listening to his work for years and years. I know that he's got a fantastic saying, which is that when you start looking into the paranormal, it will start looking back at you.
2: Oh my gosh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to wonder who's curious about what we're doing or what we're gonna find out. Is it the government? Is it the aliens? (laughs) Is it a combination of the two? But yeah, it got really, really intense. And I kind of joked about it just because I had experienced it before, but also because I honestly knew that I didn't feel like I had anything that they really wanted. And it was only years later that I realized that what we did have were actual abductees coming to us and giving us information that they were not giving law enforcement or the authority. And whoever these people were wanted that information.
0: One of the abduction cases that you investigated went against the normal abductee scenario and it involved computer technology.
2: That was a really unique case because this person experienced so many different things, along with the traditional missing time and being abducted and being experimented on. He had marks on his body. But he also talked about, you know, he had to go on to military bases to do their computer tech stuff and having experiences happen on the bases and all this really interesting stuff. And I think that was one of the cases that the powers that be, quote unquote, were really interested in because it involved technology.
1: You mentioned that he had marks on his body. Do you think it was implants or have you had any one that you've spoken to say they have had implants? It's a big thing, I think.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And I was actually, people have shown me scars where they either later had them removed or they tried to take them out themselves or scratching and, you know, try to cut it out. I've seen that. Now, can I tell you guys with 100% certainty that they were dealing with an alien implant? No. I mean, unless I see the thing and it can be analyzed, but these are people that, because one of the first things that we had to learn on the fly very quickly was how to discern people who wanted attention from the crazies who just, oh yeah, I, I see, you know, I talk to ghosts when I'm sitting on the toilet and blah, 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 whatever. (laughs) And people that were just. (laughs) I mean they're out there too although maybe who knows I can't say with 100% certainty they don't talk to ghosts while they're on the toilet but we had to discern the people that we felt were taking advantage of this new phenomenon and and wanting attention and I believe there's still a bunch out there
1: they want their I actually of name. fame
2: they've made a living off of complete and utter bs but hey you know whatever but there's also, there were so many that you just knew they were terrified. And a lot of times they would say, I don't know what's happening to me. So they would say, they wouldn't come to you and say, I've been abducted by aliens. Please help me. They would say, something happened. I don't know what happened, but I had these, these visions or I saw these things. This might be what happened to me. Can you help me figure it out? And that's like a whole different ball game because they don't want publicity. They don't ever want newspapers or radio or TV. Yeah, it's almost like they they're are. coming
1: to you more out of desperation because maybe this is somebody who will actually listen to me and won't think I'm crazy.
2: Yeah. And then I think, you know, there were also people like Betty and Barney Hill and there are a lot of really famous abduction cases where they did feel a real need to put this information out there. And those, again, I feel like those are authentic, legitimate cases. But you can kind of tell the more flashy, you know, attention-seeking people. And I think that they really set the field back for a while. And this is the same with the, with the paranormal with ghosts and all that, how a lot of the ghost hunting groups that were just, you know, just in it for the fun and trying to get on TV and what have you to set the serious research back a little bit. So I guess that's typical human behaviour.
0: Yeah, and in fact, we did our first ever interview was with a paranormal group, which we're actually going out with in a couple of weeks. And now we're not into this, you know, these TV programmes that you can tell that the cameraman is just throwing stuff around the room and it's just obviously set up. But we've actually been working quite closely with this group who are just in it for the science literally just the science if they go to a place and they come up with nothing they've been just as successful as far as they're concerned as if they've gone and actually managed to prove something because they are just in it for the science i was quite impressed actually with something that you wrote You spoke about the war of theories, which I thought was cracking, in the fact that scientists will deny anything they can't reproduce. And then you've got some of these ghost hunters that you were talking about and certain maybe religious people also deny that there may be science involved, you know, to do with the spirit or whatever. Do you think there's ever going to be a time when we can actually get past that and actually get some real work done?
2: I think it's happening now. See, I don't have a problem with, you know, I mean, if somebody offers you a TV show and you're able to actually do real research, the problem is, is I, you know, I deal with the film and TV industry. That's usually not what they want. A yeah. TV show wants entertainment. they want ratings. So, and I've been asked to do shows and I've said, no, I'm not going to come on and say things that I don't feel are true or that I have no scientific proof of or, not even any evidence of just so you can get your ratings. So there's a lot of groups out there that I think are caught in that trap of wanting to get their information out, wanting to, you know, be legitimate, but also they get they get these offers and they're not sure, should I take this? Is it, you know, is it going to change us? For a long time the paranormal community refused to speak to the scientific community and the scientific community in general completely you know, disregarded the paranormal. However, as my dad was proof of, there were always scientists who were interested. And I think in the last ten years, and I think also there were people in the paranormal field who were kind of thinking, hmm, you know, we we need to find a way to somehow Bridge look the for the science behind what's happening. Yeah, because listen, everything has a science to it. Right. That just means how something works. And if you can't figure that out, I don't think you can, you can, you know, tell me your hypothesis of the you know what, but you need to be able to tell me how is this stuff manifesting? Where is it coming from? How is how does it what are the mechanics behind it? And I think now. Everybody's kind of figuring out that we need to combine the two as best we can.
1: I got to ask you this, partly because I have a son who's very interested in aliens himself. He loves the show Ancient Aliens, and I know that you had some involvement in that show. And you mentioned that you wouldn't do a show if, you know, if you didn't believe something. So what was that experience like for you?
2: There's a lot of really good information on that show, but there is also a lot of absolute crap. Excuse my French. Uh What happens is you go and you get interviewed for hours, hours, and then they take little sound bites and they insert them into the show where they want to. So the things that you say can be taken completely out of context uh, of the original conversation.
1: That's unfortunate.
2: It is. And that's the case for most of these shows, whether it's Ancient Aliens or Nostradamus Effect or any of the other ones. The context is often very distorted to goal of of what the show is. Do I believe everything goes back to Ancient Aliens? No, not at all. They're very, very you know, enthusiastic about this idea that everything is aliens and it's not. Right. So you have to watch these shows with a sort of a a detached attitude that, Oh, that's, that sounds really interesting. And this for your son, he needs to learn how to research. Right. Okay. He needs to learn to go to different sources of information when something really interests him. So if somebody says something on ancient aliens about the pyramids, and he's like, oh, my God, that is so interesting to me. Do a lot of research. We're going to find 50 different theories. And a lot of it really comes down to a gut level discernment that I think takes a long time to develop. Yeah. But you'll also start to see people that are are involved in uh, the ancient astronaut theory or, you know, who built the pyramids or did ancient aliens come here years ago and help advance our technology, you'll start to see repeated concepts by people that are very respectful. They're credible. Maybe they're anthropologists, archaeologists, what have you. And that kind of stuff, to me, that holds more weight than, you know, somebody that just got famous and all of a sudden has this show.
1: There's no doubt, though, that shows like that probably have gotten a lot more people interested in the whole entire field.
2: That's the good part. Even the ghost hunting shows, that's the good part of it. They took it mainstream because remember, anybody who was interested in this stuff before was called a nut job.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, we're still called nut jobs.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're still called nut jobs, but now there's a lot more of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: We'll take them on. <laughs>
2: The great thing for your son's generation is that there's the Internet and there's, you know, all kinds of books and and eBooks and self-publishing and there's TV shows, there's radio shows and podcasts. There is no shortage of information. You know, he is not going to ever be restricted or short on the kinds of ideas that he can be exposed to. And it's going to be really up to him to decide what kind of what feels right. And also what he's interested in. He might just be interested in UFOs. He might be interested in ghosts, you know, cryptids, whatever.
0: I think actually he sounds a lot like Max because he's 16, so he's very similar to the age, and he's also writing a book with his girlfriend. So, oh. he's, yes, <laughs> very <Okay>. similar, actually. <laughs>
2: That's awesome. I love when young people start doing things like that.
0: Yeah. There's there's a lot worse things he could be doing with his girlfriend than writing a book. So we're quite we're quite (laughs) pleased about that.
2: There's a lot worse things he could be doing, period. That's a massive goal. That is that's awesome. And it really gives him, you know, this focus that kids that age often don't have. He's got this goal, he's wants to get this book written. He's gonna be promoting it and talking about it. That's really cool.
0: And then sending his parents on holiday. Yes. And,
2: uh, <laughs> it depends on what you're right about. There, there isn't a whole lot of money in nonfiction no, no. necessarily.
0: <laughs> Talking about the TV shows and stuff that you, you've done, you were the special consultant on the movie The Fourth Kind. Did you give them any information that maybe changed that maybe the the direction that they were originally going to go on with the show? Or
2: So I actually came on as a consultant for their marketing campaign. So, not on the film itself. Oh, right. And, uh, yeah. So, there's a difference. So, had they come to me beforehand, I probably would have made them change a few things. But I did the marketing campaign. And we talked a lot in that campaign about the presence of symbols, whether it's a number sequence or time prompt like 333 on the clock. You know, two of the very popular symbols that you deal with in a lot of abduction cases are owls. And car accidents, which appear to be sort of screeners that assist the person being being abducted and actually not completely freaking out when it happens. And what was funny is since that movie came out, there's been a couple of books written about the owl symbolism. And a lot of the belief with that is that it's it comes from Native American mythology and lore. It may very well do that.
1: But maybe this explains my owl obsession.
0: <laughs> yeah, We've got owls all over the all over the house. I'm seeing them all the time.
1: Yeah, there's
2: people obsessed with, with owls it's like, and I'm thinking, oh great, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> I want to get hypnotically regressed. but you know the idea that as something really awful and traumatic is about to happen to you, you're given something, whether it's a, a number sequence or a visual image. That makes you think it's normal. It's not bad. And it's only during that hypnotic regression, as in the movie, The Fourth Kind, where you see that that symbol is like a doorway to the stuff that your conscious mind cannot handle. So it's really interesting the way that that is set up. It sort of eases the person into an unbelievably terrifying and traumatic situation, Um, The one that really fascinates me are car accidents. We had a lot of people say, yeah, I was driving on a road and there was, I came up on a car accident, but there was like, nobody was moving. Deputy was standing there like frozen or there was no body, there was no blood and it just looked and felt weird. Well, guess what? That was that trigger image, just like the owl for other people or a time prompt or number sequence.
1: It's kind of what was put into their mind to make them not necessarily remember it.
0: Or something their mind is actually creating so that they don't have to deal with the images they actually saw.
3: Right.
2: absolutely. because the last conscious thing that they will remember is a car accident. Okay, big deal. Those happen all the time. Were you to actually go along with your subconscious, which is aware of what's really happening, You know, you might not be able to survive something like that. People emotionally, mentally break down. Mm -hmm. And that's why hypnotic regression is so tricky. It's like, do you really want to go down that rabbit hole or do you want to continue to believe that you saw an owl or a car accident several times in your life? And that's all it was. And it's, it's such a huge dilemma.
0: Yeah, there's, there's people advertising for aggression all the time, and I think that you've got to be really, really careful. I know you were talking about it earlier, but you've got to be really, really careful. If you are going to go down that rabbit hole, as you said, you do it with someone who's not going to plant images in your head.
2: Oh, absolutely. No leading, no planting ideas. I think you need incredible emotional support with friends, family, what have you. And also you really have to screen the person that is yeah. going to be doing the regression, well, you know, have they done this kind of thing? Do they have a, a track record? Are there people you can talk to that they can be just as damaging to you as the initial event if they really don't know what they're doing and how to handle, you know, you under hypnosis and get you out of hypnosis when when things start to get a little hairy. So, yeah, it's not something to ever. And I do recall years ago, there were hypnotists popping up everywhere. Yeah. I work with alien It's like, oh, my God, it's like the new flea market, the hawkers.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go and get a tattoo and I'm going to get regressed.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, honey, I'm going to go pick up a loaf of bread. I think I'll go see the hypnotist down the street while I'm at it. And it was so dangerous. And I'm sure a lot of people went to these people and were led to believe they actually had experiences they may not have had.
0: Yeah I think it's almost got to be like if you're going to go and see a psychic you know people say don't give them any information whatsoever and I think the same applies with this hypnotic regression if you have done your research and you have found someone that you think you can trust then go along to them and say I want to be regressed to this date and this time and that's all I'm telling you.
2: Yeah that's a good idea or like if again you did witness a car accident but you're kind of pretty sure it wasn't I was traumatized by a car accident, and I really want to go back and kind of work through it. Yeah, But, yeah, I like your idea of just not even letting what comes out of the subconscious mind during hypnotic regression come out naturally because they do say that under hypnosis, you're very much aware of what you're saying and doing.
0: I've been hypnotized to give up smoking. The guy that I was being hypnotized by, actually, at the end of all of the sessions, and I'd stop smoking, and at the end of all of the sessions, he said, I'm going to leave you with an exercise which will show you how powerful hypnosis is so that you can lean on this when you feel like you want a cigarette. You'll lean on the fact that uh, hypnotism worked and you'll use it as a sort of a, a bolster, if you like. He got me to relax and in a trance or whatever, and then he said, you're in a room. He said, it's a round room, and everywhere you look, as you're turning, you're seeing doors, lots and lots of doors. So he said, I want you to pick a door and walk through it. And when you go through that door, there's a memory, something that's happened to you at some point in your life, and I want you to describe it to me. And when I went through the door, I was on my school play yard. I was about eight or nine years of age, and we were doing our safe cycling tuition. With There was a police officer there. In fact, there were two police officers there. There were all the school teachers. I can remember the the children who I was stood in the line with. I can remember the cars going past in the street outside the play yard. It was just so vivid and so clear. Uh, it was just amazing.
2: Oh, uh, imagine.
0: Yeah, I think if, yeah. if done properly, it is just absolutely fantastic and I'd forgotten about that day and I remembered the face of the police officers and all of the children I went to school with and it was it was amazing
2: I mean can you imagine what memories like that are buried in your subconscious mind but also how I mean some of them you probably don't even remember but also how the ones you do remember you might be remembering them completely differently than they actually happened yeah. And our whole conscious lives now are based on all that junk that's in the subconscious that we're not even aware of. And oh, and then we wonder, you know, where all these weird behavioral patterns come from. But just, yeah. And I think that that's stuff that's scary. I mean, that is like, do you want to dig into the truth? Some people, that is like the, the quest of a lifetime. And for others, I don't know if they would have the psychological or emotional support to be able to deal with it. Hmm. Like sexual abuse, you know, the mind will change those memories into something else to be able to deal with it. And so with when you're dealing with aliens from another world, you're taking that even further. You are literally, if you were to face that truth, changing not only the identity of who you are, but your view of
0: how the world is i guess i'm lucky i picked the door i did just before we move off of this because i know i'm conscious of the time there there's one other question i want to ask you that's coming from one of our listeners before we move off of the whole ufo thing that we've been talking about this came in from one of our listeners wayne and he said do you think that the footage released early, earlier this year that was shot by the u.s navy pilots is part of a wider program of disclosure.
2: My son has had major arguments with me over that footage. He insists that it was debunked. And I said, I don't think so, honey. I think it's still open for debate. Whether a photograph or video footage is even actually authentic, if the government or a government of some other nation is releasing it, you can be sure it is being done for a reason. Whether it is to bring about real disclosure very slowly, that sort of trickle-down theory that that's all that humanity can handle is that slow reveal so that we're not, you know, totally shocked and end up rioting and freaking out and killing each other. Or if this is a campaign of disinformation to make us feel like we're getting disclosure But basically what we're getting is what they want us to think is happening. I have no idea if anybody out there ever says they know what true disclosure is, they're lying because we don't know if we're being given little pieces of the truth so that we can ease into what we kind of already know. I think most of us really accept that we're not alone in the universe or other universes too, or if they're telling us what they want us to think and moulding and shaping the public understanding of what might be going on. I, I don't
0: know which is which. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, though, because one thing that really sort of annoys me, and this isn't a show about my opinions, but one thing that really annoys me is the people that say you know, the government's hiding all of this from us, they're lying to us. And then the information comes out and they immediately jump on it and say, it's got to be true, the government told us. Well, either the government's a- a lying or they're telling the truth. And you can't pick and choose when you think they're lying and when you think they're telling the truth.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that goes for anything that any government of any country does, because they have a different agenda. And And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing it for sinister, awful reasons. I honestly think that one of the biggest aspects of disclosure is trying to gauge public reaction. Now, look what happens when you know a team wins the soccer championship or over here football you know or the people riot they burn cars they loot they mm. break into buildings they do look what happens with racial situations and you know the KKK marches and there's people shooting at each other and so if you're a government of a country and you're trying to decide should we tell these people the truth about aliens and UFOs and you're looking at how the public Responds en masse to trivial, stupid things. I honestly think that's one of the biggest deterrents to disclosure, to truthful disclosure, yeah. is the knowledge that humanity cannot take it. They're, the religions will be battling each other. Yeah. Do they believe in God? Are they, you know, did Satan send them? Are they Muslim? Are they Christian? And then you've got different countries, different governments fighting for control of the knowledge and information that those aliens might have. I see it as being a huge, huge mess, a catastrophic mess that I think would lead whoever has this information to either trickling it out very, very slowly to get people, you know, prepared for it or have it just sort of seep into the the collective unconscious of humanity or to just not ever tell us the truth at all.
1: Well, that gives me a new sort of food for thought, because I've always thought, well, if it's out there, we should know. But if you think about it, that's a really good point. We'd wipe ourselves out. We wouldn't need to worry about what aliens' agendas were or weren't, because we're bad enough on our own.
2: Well, and think about, of the different scenarios. Either the government knows, and they're... On top of it, which means that we go, wow, our government's in control. We could feel really safe and really protected. Either the government knows and they're not on top of it, which means, oh my God, the, the powers that be can't protect us. All hell breaks loose. Or the government doesn't know much more than we do, which I think is the worst of the three.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, if the government is in cahoots with them, well, whose government? And what about our, our enemies? Are they in cahoots too? And just, Oh, my God, it opens so many doors that I don't know if I think individually a lot of us are ready for it. I'm sure you guys are. I feel like I am. But collectively, I just, oh, my Lord, I think that's just crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy to even think about what might
0: There's always the idiot factor to consider, isn't there?
2: Well, and fear, because yeah. even if they're not crazies, I think fear... You know, especially so if, if the president were to come on and say and have all these people behind him of different nations and all of them are saying, yeah, they're here and they're bad. You know? <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm going to be really scared, too. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know how, you know, how do you end up behaving and what do you do in situations like that? It's kind of like being told, you know, that movie Deep Impact, where you're pretty much told the asteroid is coming and we're all going to die. Okay, what do you do? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I think it's craziness. But again, I don't know. Nobody, I don't think anybody really knows, possibly not even our government.
0: I've got a friend of mine who keeps sending me videos on FEMA camps and supposed stockpiling of coffins and and what have you. Now, obviously, you're a member of CERT, which is the Community Emergency Response Team. What do you make of that sort of stuff? I'm not one for conspiracy theories myself, but what's your opinion on all that?
2: We're actually trained through FEMA, and uh, but it's you know it's we're trained in emergency preparedness, response, first aid, triage, that kind of thing. So I don't know any more about those internment camps, quote unquote, except from what I hear. I do think that where there is smoke, there could be definitely a fire. It could be the beginning of a fire, an end of a fire, or an actual fire. So I do look at all the conspiracies. Now, it seems that most of these camps here in the United States are meant to you know, round up immigrants, but I do think that we are systematically being poisoned by our air, water, pesticides, chemicals, GMOs, you name it pharmaceutical, you know, the pharmaceutical industry runs the world. So there's a little part of me that feels like, what are those going to be used for? Are are they going to be used to house the very ill and weak as a way to sort of preserve resources for the wealthy and the more powerful? You know, I don't like to really go there because there's no evidence of that, but there are hints of that. So that's a really interesting, and I love that topic. Because they are literally giant detentions that. Yeah, I've seen the videos. We don't have that many immigrants here. You could, you know, there'd be, you would only need a few of those. Why are there so many? What is their agenda? What are they thinking?
0: It's definitely something to be concerned about. I don't have a reason, like you, I just don't see the point of large complexes, if you like, with these large boxes that are stacked. You know, thousands and thousands and thousands of them are just what's in them or, or what is meant to be in them.
2: Yeah. And, and it's something that you don't really want to, you know, you don't want to go to down that rabbit hole. But you almost have to, because, again, if they were supposed to be for illegal immigrants, I'm sorry, there aren't that many of them. Yeah. And mainly you're going to deport them. You're not going to hold them in detention centers for long. You're going to get them out of the country and deport them if they're for, you know, sick people during a plague (laughs) or some kind of new deadly pandemic, well, how do you know that's going to happen in the first place? Are you going to trigger it? I mean, really, you can start getting into some really wild corners uh, of thinking about why would you need such big facilities and all of these, you know, sort of makeshift coffins. And I will say that one of the things I love about writing fiction and, and film and TV and, you know, stories is that you can often touch on things like that, that you may not have any proof for, you know, it allows you to kind of go there. What if they're going to release some awful virus to get rid of half the population? Because we are really overpopulating the planet. Is this a agenda? What is an agenda? 21, the depopulation conspiracy. It's, it's really really scary to think about what might be the cause or the motive behind those. And you know what? It could also be as simple as they know there's going to be more natural disasters with climate change and blah, blah, blah. And they need to have places to put refugees and you know, yeah. who knows? Are yeah. we planning world war three? I mean, honestly, why do you, why do we need so many of them?
0: Yeah. It's definitely food for thought. You're currently writing a book, as you said, at the moment with your son. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, what we're doing, it's it's called Echo, and we're on book two, and it's about some kids that find out that there are mind-controlled bullies at their school, and they set out to try to identify who's behind the mind control and why. And as the story progresses, it ends up being a lot bigger, a lot more epic, in that the people controlling the kids are aliens. Oh, wow. so we're taking, we're taking his actual spy group that he formed and we're literally building a sort of a franchise. So it's really fun. And then I'm also currently writing a book about notorious ghosts and hauntings. And it's just so fascinating to see all the different places that are allegedly haunted
0: and by whom. Is that just based in America or is a certain state in America or have you are you taken it, what, what areas are you focusing on?
2: Well, the focus is on the United States because the publisher is here, but they're allowing me to sneak in some uh, international, you know, really notorious, like, train stations or cemeteries or forests, haunted forests, things like that. So I'm able to sneak in some international stuff, and there's just so much of it, it would take up 10 books. So having to sort of sift through, like, oh, my God, what am I going to include, what am I not going to include, has been very, very and a huge headache.
0: Yeah, editing yourself, that's got to be hard.
2: It is, it is. And, you know, once they get it, it's done. <laughs> yeah. But until then, I' of has to decide out of these, you know, 500,000 haunted locations, which, you know, 200 do I feature in the book? Oh, my gosh.
0: Well, I just want to say thank you very much for the time that you spent with us today. In the bits of research that we've been doing before speaking to you, I can honestly say that you have taken us down the rabbit hole, through the rabbit hole, around the rabbit hole, back up, and and in lots of other different holes. So,
1: <laughs> oh, that's not well. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: okay, I think that's a compliment. Yeah, you yeah, know, no, it is. <laughs> It is. No, but it's been really interesting. And you've written some really good books. And I think that anyone that's interested in any of the topics that we've covered today, you should definitely look up Marie D. Jones and have a look at some of the information that she's written, because you're going to enjoy it.
2: Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Now, listen, thank you very much. And and for our listeners who don't know this, we're actually recording this on a Saturday. So we really do appreciate you giving up part of your weekend to spend with us as well.
2: Absolutely. It was my pleasure. All right, thank
0: you very much.
1: Thank you. Well, that was a pretty awesome interview, actually. But uh, you and your rabbit holes?
0: Well, at least I was talking about rabbit holes and not your holes.
1: My holes. At least my holes are natural. One of your holes is the cavern in your head where your brain's supposed to be.
0: That's not very nice, is it?
1: No, but, you know, holes. My holes.
0: Let's get off the subject of holes, shall we?
1: Yeah, okay. All right.
0: Anyway, guys, as always, thank you very much for listening to our show today. Please stay tuned and subscribe, as we said, and we will give you more exciting content next time.
1: Yep. Bye, everybody. I'm going to go poke some holes in my husband.
0: (laughs) Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye.